When the actors arrived on the set of The Abyss, director James Cameron greeted them with a Welcome to my nightmare. Whether an exasperated joke or a foreboding warning, he wasn't kidding. Much like the film itself, production on The Abyss was a tense, claustrophobic thriller, full of inescapable water, near drownings, and frequent disasters. At the center of all of it was a meticulous auteur, who believed his art was worth the suffering, regardless of it being a shit show. If there's one thing to know about writer-director James Cameron, it's that he loves the ocean. He practically made a career out of it, from his films, to his documentaries, to his insane ocean floor excursions. This all started back when he was in high school and saw a lecture about deep sea diving, presented by the first man to breathe oxygen-rich fluid through his lungs. Instantly infatuated, Cameron went home and wrote a short story about scientists at the bottom of the sea. Decades later, while directing Aliens, he saw a National Geographic documentary about deep-sea submersibles and recalled his short story. He began writing the screenplay to the Abyss, named after the Friedrich Nietzsche quote, And if you gaze too long into an abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. Since Aliens and his previous film The Terminator were such big financial hits for 20th Century Fox, with Aliens receiving seven Oscar nominations, Cameron had enough clout to pick his next project. He chose to stay with Fox and make The Abyss with his wife and producing partner, Gail Ann Hurd. His finished script was about a group of underwater oil riggers, inadvertently dealing with Cold War tensions, when they are tasked with a rescue mission of a crashed nuclear submarine, and things take an unexpected turn when they run into non-terrestrial intelligence, or NTIs. When Cameron turned in the script, the studio assumed he planned to use visual effects and models to do most of the underwater sequences. But Cameron wanted it to be real. If I couldn't do what 2001 A Space Odyssey did for science fiction films taking place in space, if I didn't feel that I could do that in the underwater uh, arena, then I didn't want to make the movie. They went back and forth on the budget until Fox greenlit the project for $33 million. The search began for a suitable place to film an underwater epic. No freshwater tank would be big enough for Cameron's vision, and they certainly didn't want to film in the uncontrollable environment of the actual ocean, a lesson Steven Spielberg learned the hard way on Jaws. In the most unlikely of places to film an underwater movie, the filmmakers chose the Cherokee Nuclear Power Plant in South Carolina, which was abandoned mid-construction. The first option was a turbine pit that could easily hold 2.5 million gallons of water. Referred to as B-Tank, they used the pit to film multiple smaller sets and sequences, such as the crashed sub. For the second set, they determined they could convert a partially constructed reactor containment vessel into the largest filtered freshwater tank in the world. A-Tank is where they constructed an entire rock face and the fictional drilling platform, Deep Core. For the 11 million gallons of water necessary for both tanks, they tapped a nearby river. The water was then processed, filtered for clarity, and heated to 84 degrees. To make a film of this scale, with 40% of it being shot underwater, clever workarounds and equipment were invented, from an air refilling station to the housing units for the cameras. The diving suits were made expressly for the film, as they not only had to light the actors' faces, but include a communication system and independently record dialogue, which had never been done before. To achieve the look of 2,000 feet under the sea, the filmmakers had to block out any sunlight. 
They covered A-Tank with a gigantic black tarp. Then over the water, they poured an obscene amount of black beads. Beads? This allowed the crew to safely surface without any obstruction. Then they had to figure out how to light the set. One engineer told us, you're all going to die. You're all going to get electrocuted. The other engineer said, oh, I know what to do. We'll use, uh, we'll use HMI bulbs and we'll use double inline ground fault interrupters to make sure that there's no short circuiting that injures anybody. And that's what we did. So we went with engineer B, clearly, a guy named Pete Romano. The main cast trained for two weeks to become certified divers. And when they got to the set in early August 1988, they had to train for another two weeks in the new hard hat diving suits. Though they ran endless safety drills, their unstructured pool time would be the only moments they enjoyed themselves on the abyss. I don't think there will ever be a film, certainly before the end of this century, as much of a challenge as the abyss was, not only technologically, but also physically and emotionally on all of us involved with it. The construction of the A-Tank set was such a colossal undertaking, it took longer than expected and delayed filming by six weeks. Since it would take five days to fill the 55-foot deep structure with 7.5 million gallons of water, they chose to start filling it anyway. Construction had to keep up with the rising water. Already behind schedule, a frustrated Cameron started filming in B-Tank, even though they weren't supposed to shoot there for another few weeks. The crew had to work day and night to complete the sunken submarine set. Once done, the cast finally got to show off their new skills, but the set was deliberately rotated 45 degrees, with debris littered about, making things awkward as hell. The actors were disoriented and could barely complete a shot. They stumbled around like newborns, crashing into objects and each other. Very little was being accomplished, and in rushing to get B-Tank ready, the crew didn't know what to expect, so the pH levels hadn't been properly balanced yet. It quickly became murky and unsuitable for shooting. They began pouring extra chlorine into the mix. It helped with visibility, but it soon showed its effects on the crew. Those not in full scuba suits and diving helmets found their hair bleach blonde. Then their body hair fell out, and then came the chemical burns. This was their first week of filming. And that's how we started, and then it got worse. Each day underwater was a logistical horror show. Because of the limited technology at the time, communication with every submerged individual was nearly one way. Cameron essentially used a PA system to speak to everyone, but only the actors could speak directly back to him. Everyone else had to use hand signals and lip reading. To make this work, Cameron and his crew spent hours beforehand planning every single shot. With 20 to sometimes 45 people underwater, every scenario imaginable was required to be meticulously thought out. How to move the lighting without electrocuting everyone, making sure the actors knew where the cameras were, when the submersibles needed to hit their mark, when the safety divers had to provide air, and what steps had to be taken if something went wrong. The list goes on. It would take days to complete a single scene. Only a couple of weeks in, the filtration system began to break regularly. And on days off, wild goats would wander onto set, chew up cables, trample the piping, and pee on everything. The crew were engineering fixes on a daily basis. Between repairing the pumps and the time it took to set up shots, the actors had a lot of downtime. It was common for them to suit up, jump in the tanks, then wait for hours on end. And they couldn't leave the set in the unlikely scenario they could actually film something. Michael Bean summed up his experience, saying he was in South Carolina for five months and only acted for three or four weeks. Being able to stand there underwater, about 30, uh, 40 feet down, and just 
Just stand there. I mean, you pretend like you're waiting for a bus for four hours. The actors never went to a depth that required decompression. But for most of the crew, they would spend up to two hours at the end of a long day decompressing to avoid the bends, a fun condition where gas bubbles bubble up in your bloodstream that can cause paralysis or even death. Then hang out in their hotel rooms wearing oxygen masks. And with no bathroom breaks, everyone just peed in their wetsuits. An experience referred to as diver's delight. It well went down your leg and came up on your body and it just felt really warm. And it was a nice feeling. <laughs> for some, the filming of the abyss was a fun one. But for most, the insanity led to breaking points. It was almost immediately for J.C. Quinn. He had a near mental breakdown, asking to be fired. Just want to get out of this. From the possibility of dying to the consistently annoying respirator sound that was later edited out. How you guys doing? Everything had the cast and crew on edge. The biggest problem that we encountered early on was that sense of panic, was that sense of being on the brink of panic, relying on equipment, which as an actor you normally don't have to do except as a prop, and these were not props. These were life support. To ease the pressure, they'd often break anything in sight or kick in windows. I grew to compare everything else to, to doing the abyss. Believe me, I mean, you walk around and you hear actors bitching and moaning and people bitching and moaning about this. I say, fuck you, I did the abyss. Though she made it through a lifeless swim scene without a stunt double, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio's worst moment was not in the water. During her resuscitation scene, she laid on cold steel, wet and exposed in front of dozens of people, while Ed Harris pounded on her chest and slapped her in the face. Cameron wanted take after take until the camera ran out of film in the middle of a shot. And she heard that and she just like freaked. She just said, hey man, we are not animals. I don't know what you're doing here, but we are not animals. The rest was shot without her, with the camera pointed up from the floor. To this day, Master Antonio will not discuss her time on the abyss. For Harris, he enjoyed the challenge and is super proud of what he accomplished in the movie. But after a near-death experience in the fluid breathing suit, even he couldn't keep it together. Breathing liquid exists and was used for real with Benny the Rat. In five takes, five different rats went through the same thing, all coming out fine, according to Cameron. But Harris had to fake it. Each shot was determined by how long he was able to withstand the chlorine burning his eyes and pretending he was breathing while his helmet was filled with water while underwater. It'll feel a little strange. Yeah, no shit. Harris was in constant danger. It was extraordinary. I mean, there was no, the line between uh, movie and, and reality it, it didn't exist. To pull off his descent into an abyssal trench, they towed Harris sideways along the rock face in A-Tank, then tilted the camera to simulate the fall. On the third take, Harris's safety diver got tangled in the wires. So when Harris needed air, a crew member took it upon themselves to help, but they mistakenly gave him the regulator upside down. Harris inhaled half air, half water. He perched the regulator and tried again. Same effect. He began to panic before the cameraman swam over, pushed the other guy out of the way, and gave Harris his air correctly. That night, on his drive to the hotel, Harris pulled over and broke down crying. Surprisingly, mad at himself for not being able to complete the shot. There was a part of me that was really um, disappointed in myself for not being able to do this thing. And I really thought I was gonna die for a second, and, I, and it also pissed me off that I was uh, 
that I was afraid of that, that I got scared of that for a second. As filming dragged into fall, the weather got worse. Thunderstorms ravaged the tarp over A-Tank, and it eventually gave out. Cameron was forced to move production to night shoots, just when it was getting cold. Gail Ann Hurd fought with the studio to get hot tubs for the set. They thought it was an expensive luxury, but the filmmakers needed them to keep from freezing between dives. Ultimately, it got so cold that all shot briefings were held in them. Fox would often send executives to the set to discuss budget overruns. Beads aren't cheap. Are beads cheap? They questioned everything, but rarely understood what the filmmakers were going through. They didn't understand that chemicals were eating their wetsuits, so they needed to keep buying more. Nor did they get that a lot of these expensive props were also life support. The chaos wasn't apparent to Fox until the studio head happened to visit when the water in B-Tank became cloudy. They discovered, later, that the glue used in one section of the submarine set was water-soluble. But as they floated around in confusion, the generators failed suddenly, plunging everyone into darkness. And, you know, the heart starts pumping and you say to yourself, oh, I can't see anybody. I guess that means nobody can see me. Gee, I wonder how much oxygen I had in my tank. I don't really remember. Gee, I wonder where the tank is. Gee, I wonder where anybody else is. In Cameron's own words, he was the architect of this misery. He wanted to prove to himself that he could make such a technically difficult film. He pushed people beyond what they were capable of, just to get the perfect shot. Blunt and candid, he ruled like an autocrat, with short patience and a complete lack of bedside manner. He knew the actors grew to hate him, but he didn't care for their pampered lifestyle sob stories, saying, for every hour they spent trying to figure out what magazine to read, we spent an hour at the bottom of the tank breathing compressed air. He never crossed a line with the crew, and none of them could accuse him of exploiting his position of power or phoning it in. He was unwavering in his commitment to making the film. Even though he and Heard were going through a divorce during production, again, the parallels to the film itself are uncanny. He never let that interfere. He was putting in 15-hour days, planning every detail, solving every problem. So when you got that kind of leadership, you, uh, you either come up to it or you get the hell out of there. One or the other, and not one of us was willing to back down. He was so nonstop, he'd watch dailies underwater while decompressing. But even Cameron wasn't spared from the mishaps. He got a taste of his own misery when his assistant failed to tell him the state of his air supply. Caught off guard, he ditched his gear and swam upward. He met a safety diver 15 feet below the surface. They gave Cameron a broken regulator and he inhaled water. The diver didn't know what was wrong and hugged Cameron tighter to keep him from panicking. Cameron resulted to punching the diver just to get away. A few hours later, a Fox executive showed up to talk about budget cuts again. Cameron snapped. He put his helmet on the guy, sealed it, and made him choke for a few seconds. Then ripped off the helmet and yelled, that's what it feels like when you're running out of air in a diving helmet and you think you're going to die, which happened to me a few hours ago. So if you think you know more about this shit than we do, then feel free to tell me what's on your mind. Otherwise, just shut the f up and go home. Cameron then fired the safety diver and his assistant. It was pretty much your basic day on the abyss. When the abyss finished its grueling 140-day principal photography, it was five weeks behind schedule and four million over budget.
Like most of Cameron's films, he wanted to push the boundaries of what was possible, and in 1989, that was asking a lot. The film's greatest advancement was the water tentacle pseudopod. Cameron suggested projecting water ripples on stop-motion clay, but ILM's Dennis Murin convinced Cameron they could do it with computer-generated imagery. I was very, very leery about CG. It was not an area I knew anything about. Felt like it would be so opaque that I wouldn't be, as a director, really able to control it or even know what to ask for. Murin demoed a crude two-second test, and Cameron chose to trust that ILM would eventually be able to figure it out. But Dennis said, it's going to take this many months. We're going to need X amount of time to develop a new tool set. And so I thought, one, total leap of faith. Two, it will be so cool. ILM had to develop technology that simply didn't exist. They built one of the first scanners to digitize human faces and wrote the book on how to make realistic water effects in a computer, from reflections to rippling. After six months of work, ILM created the first digital 3D character in film. Those 75 seconds were revolutionary for its time, and it still holds up today. Hey Ace, you done impressing yourself? <laughs> the film's first cut was far too long for Fox, hitting nearly three hours, which at the time was considered a death nail for box office potential. Instead of cutting bits and pieces, Cameron took a machete to the film's Cold War subplot. Almost any mention of the tensions between the U.S. and Russia were removed. The biggest cut came with the ending encounter with the NTIs, where they revealed they were about to drown the world for humanity's petty warmongering. Cameron was not happy with ILM's practical tidal wave effects and was okay with removing all of it. Still, Cameron toiled away with the edit and visual effects, forcing Fox to keep pushing the release date. Originally set for July 5th, it was moved to July 28th to give Cameron extra time, but under the condition that he forfeit half of his salary to help finish the VFX. Yet even then, Cameron asked if they could delay it more. What? After a year of dealing with Cameron's constant nitpicky perfectionism, Fox reached the end of their rope. An executive barged into the editing room, threatening Cameron, you can either finish the movie some way, or you can personally go to 1,200 theaters and describe the movie for the audience four shows a day. Cameron gave up. Now 10 million over budget, production on the abyss finally came to an end. You all right, everybody okay? Yeah. Yeah. Bitch. Back when Fox announced their next feature from their new Golden Boy, Rival Studios fast-tracked their own underwater thrillers. Horror films Deep Star Six and Leviathan were both released in early 1989, beating the abyss to theaters. And both bombed. Fox grew scared audiences were sick of underwater movies, or uninterested in them. Fox didn't even know how to succinctly market such a complex film that couldn't be boiled down to a single tagline. Adding to the troubles, the media kept incorrectly calling The Abyss a horror flick, and internal testing found that most Americans couldn't even pronounce Abyss. So when the film finally released on August 9th, the reception was lukewarm. Widely appreciated for the performances and the craftsmanship on display, most agreed that the final act with the NTIs was a jarring and abrupt left turn, perhaps souring everything that preceded it. Grossing only $54 million in the U.S., the film barely broke even. Cameron would bounce back two years later with the enormously successful Terminator 2 Judgment Day, 
Easily one of the greatest action films ever made, it pushed visual effects further than ever before, thanks to the advancements pioneered on the Abyss. Fox was eager to keep Cameron around and signed him for a five-year deal worth $500 million. It gave Cameron unprecedented control of his future projects. The contract also allowed extra funding so ILM could complete their work on the Abyss. They returned to the tidal wave sequence, ditched the practical effect, and rebuilt it entirely with CGI. The special edition released on Laserdisc in 1993, restoring 28 minutes of cut footage, including the world-ending scenario. I still think it's a damn good movie at 2 hours and 20 minutes. I think it's a better movie at close to 3 hours. However, the inclusion of that footage drastically changes the message of the film, furthering the divisive opinions about its ending. That said, The Abyss has aged very well and is hardly the black sheep of Cameron's filmography that some might expect. Cameron stated he'd probably never invest as much of his soul and energy into a film again. Where are we next with the four sequels that are planned for Avatar? There's going to be four films coming out one after the other. Hopefully you're a part if we can do that. Well, at least he didn't deal with water again. We were training for 18 months, a full year before we ever started shooting in the tank. And I think you can really tell looking at the movie. Fuck you, I did the abyss. In Under Pressure, Making the Abyss, a documentary commissioned by Cameron himself, he begins with this gem. I'm James Cameron, and I want to take you into a world of cold, darkness, and unrelenting pressure. The movie business. Cameron seems to imply that the cost of filmmaking is a high one, and it takes the hardest of hearts to survive. As if Cameron is simply a product of his environment, a symptom of this movie business. And every unbearable moment that his cast and crew went through was a stepping stone to achieve his vision. Was it necessary to go to all that? Well, um... I think so. I think, you know, I mean, obviously I thought so because that's the way I did it. So you're asking, you're asking the wrong person. Do you ever think you placed them in jeopardy you yourself would not have wanted to be in? Well, some people like to challenge themselves, yeah. and I think we all were trying to push ourselves a little bit. You know, jeopardy is relative. You know, we, I may have lost a little perspective on that movie and, and pushed beyond what it, what it should be, but, the, you know, that's the nature of filmmaking. This is why James Cameron can be considered one of the most difficult people to work with in Hollywood. His desire to be the first and constant need to raise the bar on everything he does is relentless. No budget is too steep, and to the studios, the tickets sold justify his methods. Whether or not you agree that his films are worth the suffering, James Cameron is going to do what James Cameron does for James Cameron. James Cameron does what James Cameron does because James Cameron is James Cameron. His name is James, James Cameron, the bravest pioneer. No budget too steep, no sea too deep. Who's that? It's him, James Cameron. Systems are normal. You guys hearing the song okay up there? James Cameron, explorer of the sea. Yes, James, we'd hear the song. With a dying thirst to be the first. Could it be? Yeah, it's him, James Cameron. Thank you so much for listening. It Was a Shit Show is researched and produced by me, Ian Gench. Sound editing and mix by Ray Reynolds. Our theme music is by Ryan K. Hudson. Wardrobe provided by Clint's Closet. If you're enjoying the show, help spread the word by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you have a shit show suggestion, find us on social media at it was a shit show, but shit without the eye. Or send us an email. You can also find all these episodes on our YouTube channel. <laughs>